Section 15 of Knickerbocker's History of New York, Volume 1, by Washington Irving. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. Knickerbocker's History of New York, Volume 1, by Washington Irving. Book 2, Chapter 5. The darkness of night had closed upon this disastrous day, and a doleful night was it to the shipwrecked Pavonians, whose ears were incessantly assailed with the raging of the elements and the howling of the hobgoblins that infested this perfidious strait. But when the morning dawned, the horrors of the preceding evening had passed away. Rapids, breakers, and whirlpools had disappeared. The stream again ran smooth and dimpling and having changed its tide, rolled gently back towards the quarter where lay their much-regretted home. The woe-begone heroes of Communipaw eyed each other with rueful countenances. Their squadrons had been totally dispersed by the late disaster. Some were cast upon the western shore, where, headed by one Rulef Hopper, they took possession of all the country lying about the six-mile stone, which is held by the Hoppers at this present writing. The Waldrons were driven by stress of weather to a distant coast, where, having with them a jug of genuine Hollands, they were enabled to conciliate the savages, setting up a kind of tavern, whence it is said did spring the fair town of Harlem, in which their descendants have ever since continued to be reputable publicans. As to the Soydams, they were thrown upon the Long Island coast, and may still be found in those parts. But the most singular luck attended the great Tenbrook, who, falling overboard, was miraculously preserved from sinking by the multitude of his nether garments. Thus buoyed up, he floated on the waves like a merman, or like an angler's dauber, until he landed safely on a rock, where he was found the next morning busily drying his many breeches in the sunshine. I forbear to treat of the long consultation of Olaf with his remaining followers, in which they determined that it would never do to found a city in so diabolical a neighborhood. Suffice it, in simple brevity, to say, that they once more committed themselves with fear and trembling to the briny element, and steered their course back again through the scenes of their yesterday's voyage, determined no longer to roam in search of distant sites but to settle themselves down in the marshy regions of Pavonia. Scarce, however, had they gained a distant view of Communipaw, when they were encountered by an obstinate eddy, which opposed their homeward voyage. Weary and dispirited as they were, they yet tugged a feeble oar against the stream, until, as if to settle the strife, half a score of potent billows rolled the tub of Commodore Van Cortland high and dry, on the long point of an island which divided the bosom of the bay. Some pretend that these billows were sent by old Neptune to strand the expedition on a spot whereon was to be founded his stronghold in this western world. Others, more pious, attribute everything to the guardianship of the good St. Nicholas, and after events will be found to corroborate this opinion. Olaf Van Cortland was a devout trencherman. Every repast was a kind of religious rite with him, 
and his first thought on finding him once more on dry ground was how he should contrive to celebrate his wonderful escape from hellgate and all its horrors by a solemn banquet the stores which had been provided for the voyage by the good housewives of Communipaw were nearly exhausted. But in casting his eyes about, the Commodore beheld that the shore abounded with oysters. A great store of these was instantly collected. A fire was made at the foot of a tree. All hands fell to roasting and broiling and stewing and frying, and a sumptuous repast was soon set forth. This is thought to be the origin of those civic feasts, with which to the present day all our public affairs are celebrated, and in which the oyster is ever sure to play an important part. On the present occasion the worthy Van Cortland was observed to be particularly zealous in his devotions to the trencher, for having the cares of the expedition especially committed to his care, he deemed it incumbent on him to eat profoundly for the public good in proportion as he filled himself to the very brim with the dainty viands before him did the heart of this excellent burgher rise up towards his throat until he seemed crammed and almost choked with good eating and good nature and at such times it is when a man's heart is in his throat that he may more truly be said to speak from it and his speeches abound with kindness and good fellowship thus having swallowed the last possible morsel and washed it down with a fervent potation, Olaf felt his heart yearning, and his whole frame in a manner dilating with unbounded benevolence. Everything around him seemed excellent and delightful, and laying his hands on each side of his capacious periphery, and rolling his half-closed eyes around on the beautiful diversity of land and water before him, he exclaimed in a fat, half-smothered voice, what a charming prospect the words died away in his throat he seemed to ponder on the fair scene for a moment his eyelids heavily closed over their orbs his head drooped upon his bosom he slowly sank upon the green turf and a deep sleep stole gradually over him and the sage olaf dreamed a dream and lo the good saint nicholas came riding over the tops of the trees in that self-same wagon wherein he brings his yearly presents to children and he descended hard by where the heroes of communipaw had made their late repast and he lit his pipe by the fire and sat himself down and smoked and as he smoked the smoke from his pipe ascended into the air and spread like a cloud overhead and Olaf bethought him, and he hastened and climbed up to the top of one of the tallest trees, and saw that the smoke spread over a great extent of country, and as he considered it more attentively, he fancied that the great volume of smoke assumed a variety of marvellous forms, where in dim obscurity he saw shadowed out palaces and domes and lofty spires, all of which lasted but a moment and then faded away until the whole rolled off and nothing but the green woods were left and when saint nicholas had smoked his pipe he twisted it in his hat-band and laying his finger beside his nose gave the astonished van cortland a very significant look then mounting his wagon he returned over the tree-tops and disappeared 
and Van Cortland awoke from his dream greatly instructed, and he aroused his companions and related to them his dream, and interpreted it that it was the will of St. Nicholas that they should settle down and build the city here, and that the smoke of the pipe was a type how vast would be the extent of the city, inasmuch as the volumes of its smoke would spread over a wide extent of country. And they all with one voice assented to this interpretation, excepting Mynheer Tenbroke, who declared the meaning to be that it would be a city wherein a little fire would occasion a great smoke, or, in other words, a very vaporing little city both which interpretations have strangely come to pass. The great object of their perilous expedition, therefore, being thus happily accomplished, the voyagers returned merrily to Communipaw, where they were received with great rejoicings. And here, calling a general meeting of all the wise men and the dignitaries of Pavonia, they related the whole history of their voyage, and of the dream of Olaf van Cortland and the people lifted up their voices and blessed the good St. Nicholas. And from that time forth the sage Van Cortland was held in more honor than ever, for his great talent at dreaming, and was pronounced a most useful citizen, and a right good man, when he was asleep. End of section 15